Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York City, we have our regular co-host back this week after a brief absence, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School and co-editor of Just Security. How are you today, Ryan? Uh, Pretty well, David. Thanks. Um, Excellent. And in Washington, another of our regular friends, Kavita Patel, um, uh, fully hydrated as she always is, former former Obama White House um, uh, staffer and uh, practicing physician. How are you, Kavita? I'm great, and so is the fly on my head that you cannot there is, see. Yeah, it's very clever of you <laughs> to have dark clever. hair. Everybody took a look on the video. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah. so what did you think last night? We have a lot of things to go over, and we've even got a guest coming in, but let's just start with that. What did you think of the debate last night there, Kavita? Well, I thought, I, I'll just say, I, I, David, you summed it up best in like a series of tweets. I mean, this was like Kamala Harris was just in her element in so many ways. And, and, and put aside that I was kind of, I think as you were, a very very early fan of hers, I think uh, another word that could be used to summarize, which I had not actually heard, stupid as that sounds, um, manterruption. She, she was the masterclass in how to deal with what's called manterruptions. And some of those manterruptions were from Susan Page. So she, she did an excellent job. To me, there was really no clear like point where I think that changed hearts and minds, to be honest. I think it just reinforced that Republicans are in a defensive posture and Democrats are probably going to feel maybe a little overconfident after these series of performances. And hopefully they will not let that, hopefully they will not let that hubris, potential hubris get to, you know, in the way. Because at this same time, I had a friend remind me four years ago when the Axis Hollywood tapes kind of went out and we all thought that would have some lasting impact. I don't think that competes with the pandemic, but it is a reminder. We're still a ways away from the election in some regard. Okay. We've also been joined by uh, Michael Schmidt, who we're going to talk to about another story in just a minute. But Michael, if you will be patient with us, I was asking Kavita what she thought of the vice presidential debate last night. And I'd like to ask Ryan, and then we'll turn to you in one moment about a couple of your stories. Um, but Ryan, what do you think of the vice presidential debate last night? Um, so I thought it was, you know, I thought the main points that, uh, Kamala Harris scored were all around the coronavirus uh, pandemic. And in a certain sense, you know, Mike Pence going into the debate had a very weak hand. Uh, so it's not as though, um, he could have mounted something more of a defense. Um, in terms of whether or not um, it changed hearts and minds, you know, the one thing about that CNN snap poll that was taken afterwards that showed a very significant percentage of that um, survey, the people surveyed thought that she had won. 
also had a, that uh, her favorability went up from 56% before the debate to 63% after the debate. So, you know, by all accounts, she won. And this is, you know, what in a historical moment for a woman of color and African-American women to be there on the debate stage, winning the debate, according to many accounts, if not most accounts, all accounts, not all accounts, I guess, but most accounts, and doing it under the climate of everybody, thinking more along the lines of the vice president being a heartbeat away from the presidency, given where we are in recent developments with uh, President Trump's health. So, you know, what an extraordinary historical moment um, that some people had said, oh, you know, this is a vice presidential debate that will not be remembered come the weekend because we have like three, four <laughs> news cycles before the weekend, but it will be remembered um, historically as this kind of breakthrough, I think, moment for uh, you know, a diverse vice presidential candidate. And in some sense, also setting up Kamala Harris, not to think too far ahead, but I was thinking about her in 2024. What a you know, formidable force she is. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Michael, uh, welcome, and uh, uh, glad to have you back. Michael, of course, uh, not only uh, uh, writer for the New York Times, but author of the excellent book we talked about the last time, Donald Trump versus the United States. And, Michael, when we reached out to you, it was to talk about um, the story that you did with Michael Shear and Katie Benner called We Need to Take Away Children No Matter How Young, Justice Department officials said. But I want to turn to Ryan, who's going to ask you a question about a story you wrote more recently, and then we'll turn to that, if that's okay with you. Right. Ryan? Uh, so, Michael, uh, the story that you wrote about today is the change in the Justice Department policy of non-interference in elections. Uh, so this kind of long-standing, decades-old uh, DOJ policy that they should take no action with respect to things like voter fraud uh, cases that would be any kind of a public action before an election. Um, and there's been a, sounds like, a, you know, a very significant change. You guys very nicely uh, tip your hat to the ProPublica piece that came out in the last, I think, 24 hours that had first reported about this Friday email in the Justice Department being sent out to U.S. attorneys across the country that says now there's an exception uh, to this policy, and the exception is at least um, for potential suspects who might be federal workers, like postal workers or in the DOD, all bets are off, and the exception, and that's now an exception that they maybe very well could bring very public actions, um, investigations that they publicly announce, and I guess, uh, you know, one thought I had is, uh, you know, first to just correct me if I'm getting any of that wrong, but then second is maybe to go the next layer of analysis deeper. So you all also, you know, refer to the Justice Department's response to this reporting where the Justice Department says that the new memo was not a political act and that no political appointee directed, prepared, or issued it. That's, you know, from your report. And how, how should we think about that? Is that a was that compelling to you, um, or do you think that there's more evidence here that something uh, more nefarious is happening um, or more, con more concerning about the politicization of the Justice Department? So this picks up from the last discussion I had when I came on here, 
which was about, uh, we were going back and forth about how, you know, I think David said something about how there were these investigations and, you know, nothing came of them. They were looking at other spinoffs of Mueller and nothing came of them. And I said, you don't know the answer to that question because you don't know what's going on inside the Justice Department. But the problem is, is that because of the president's record, um, because of the president's rhetoric, and because of the attorney general's rhetoric, it allows the perception of politics to seep in. So let's take them at face value for the sake of this argument on this, this issue that you just laid out. The problem is, is that because of the attorney general's rhetoric on this issue, whenever something is done around it, you have to give it extra skepticism because the attorney general is on the record very publicly laying out how he views the matter. So it's a continuum of other problems. And I've become very uh, shameless in the promotion of my own book. But in my book, I talk about how in these secret memos, the White House lawyers told the president, even if you appear to be meddling in the Justice Department's work, not meddling in, appear to be meddling in, even if you appear to be meddling in the Justice Department's work, there could be immense consequences. And there is a long-established norm that politics should not be in law enforcement. The president, again today, flaunting that in going out and saying that his rivals should be prosecuted. So at the most fundamental level about the issue of politics and law enforcement, keeping them separate keeps the issue of the perception away. But it's hard when things happen to now just say, oh, the department's up to its normal work when the president and the attorney general are on the record about it. So the, the, the reason that we originally uh, thought to ask you back very um, soon after your last visit, uh, besides to shamelessly promote your book and say Donald Trump versus the United States by Michael Schmidt is a book that you've got to have, is um, this story that came out about the role of the Justice Department, at the time the Justice Department under Attorney General Sessions, um, in promulgating policies that led to uh, what is clearly the mistreatment of uh, children and families at, at the border. Uh, in fact, perhaps we'll come back to this a little later, but uh, uh, Ryan's uh, publication, Just Security, ran a story by an international uh, legal expert talking about the degree to which what we did at the border was uh, a violation of international law. Um, and I'll start with a question and then I'll, I'll, I'll turn to Kavita for her reaction. But just picking up on what you said, to what extent in reporting the story did you come away with reactions from U.S. attorneys and others who felt that this was violating norms, that this was going beyond where they were comfortable going, that this administration was pushing uh, 
beyond not just uh, the boundaries of the law, but the boundaries of human rights. So the information in our story is more about the mechanics of what's going on inside the Justice Department than it is about what the legal implications of this may have been. And it was a pretty interesting experience to, to work on this story for me because I had, in all of my coverage, because I was off covering the Mueller investigation and other stuff, I had never written, I'd never written about the separation policy. So I, I, I got under the hood and looked at it and learned it in a way that I hadn't before. And it was striking to me the sort of pushback in the sense of Rod Rosenstein explaining his role that these people basically looked like they were just following orders. They were following orders. This is what the president wanted to do. They thought it was legal and they were just following orders. And the sort of clinical way that it was looked at in the sense of Rosenstein saying, well, the children were not DOJ equities. And the way that the age of the child was not a determining, they did not, the Justice Department did not want that to be a determining factor in whether the children were separated. Um, the power of the Inspector General investigation is the ability to go inside of those decisions and see how these senior Justice Department officials were implementing this policy, the pushback they were getting from the prosecutors at the border, and the insistence from Washington to move forward from it. Um, it's just quite stark. And I'll leave it up to others to, to make the, you know, whether it violates international law or what the, um, um, the other things is. But this document, and when this Inspector General's report comes out, it is just an incredible accounting of how the Justice Department did this. And all the more significant because Jeff Sessions is on the record saying they didn't think that this policy was going to separate children from their parents. This document completely obliterates that notion. Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't. It, it, it doesn't reflect well on Sessions or, or uh, Rosenstein. Kavita, you're a doctor. You look at this from a different perspective. You've been a, a, a White House official. What was your reaction? And do you have a question for Michael? Well, Michael, yes, and it's uh, great reporting. And I, I did read your book. I'll plug it again, oh, Donald wow. Trump versus the United States. I thought it was a great, I guess, my very kind of impression takeaway, and I think you've spoken about it publicly, was that unlike other White Houses where you really do have this kind of presidential use of power um, that, you know, enables or allows for the people around him to kind of want to kind of take forward the president's vision. Trump really clearly from your book, you, it's so clear that you had people who are like actively trying to figure out how to stop what is a run amok train. And I think I contrast that with what, and I, you know, I, I've worked with then Senator Sessions. So I, I feel like between Sessions and Rosenstein and others, I, I guess my question for you is, does this change anything um, about kind of the way your book really, I think, drove home how this presidency is so unique? Or is this yet again, just another manifestation, but perhaps a little different 
And then I guess a two part, a second part is, and then Michael just reflecting now on multiple, put aside Trump and his insanity, multiple opportunities. I think everybody read your, like I did, the New York Times article and kind of thought, this is awful, separating breastfeeding children and we're aghast. And then the moment just kind of passes us and it's in the rearview mirror. And then today, before you came on, you know, we're half joking about kidnapping the governor and a fly on someone's head. So this has happened, by the way, to Obama, to Bush, HW, and W. Is this just one in a sequence or will there be some will there be some change in accountability in the way kind of whether it's justice department uh, in the transition of power? Will there be something that the Democrats will be wildly swinging such that these things could never happen again? Kind of the way Kamala Harris was talking about changing laws for the DOJ for states that tried to take down, you know, abortion access. Do you see anything there? So sorry, it's a lot, but I just wanted my one question. Well, I'm flattered you read my book. That it's a great, a it's, I will say for all the people, it, it's a great lesson in why this presidency in an objective way is just so bizarre on so, but in a very analytical way. So I thought it was well done. I appreciate that. A ton. That means a ton. Um, on the first point that you make, I want to ask a question, and it's not really usually my place to ask a question because it, you know, it's trying to base, you know, reporting on what you know. But it's just something that I have, um, given my reporting experiences, just can't get out of my head. And that's the question of why was it that the Justice Department pushed so hard for the child separation policy? Was it because Jeff Sessions um, really believed in it? It seems like Jeff Sessions did really believe in it. Um, but in how much of his belief in it was a motivating factor? And how much were they trying to appease the president? And how much was this being driven by the president? Because I, for better or worse, see Sessions and Rosenstein, given the reporting that I've done, in the context of what's going on. April 2018, what's going on? So there's the Michael Cohen raid that goes on in April 2018. Trump is raging about Mueller. Um, he has already begun to try uh, to pressure Sessions and that same month, Don McGahn, to prosecute Hillary Clinton and James Comey. This leads to these memos that I was actually referencing earlier about how they say to the president, you can't be involved in the Justice Department's work. It, it could be very damaging. But I would love, and, I, and it may be an unanswerable question, but I would really want to know, because at this point, Sessions is clinging on to his job for dear life. Rosenstein, to the same extent, Trump wants to fire everyone and prosecute everyone. How much was it a belief in the policy or how much was it an attempt to appease Trump? And it's probably an unanswerable question. And given the fact that Sessions says that the policy wasn't designed to separate people, you're already starting with people that are probably not going to give you the full truth about this matter. But how much of that, of that, that pressure from Trump is, is playing on them in that back and forth? And I don't know, um, but I can't stop thinking about it. So I'm just picking up um, on what 
what Michael was talking about, and I, I saw that Miles um, Taylor from DHS um, responded to the story by saying, there's more to come. Watch this space. And it seemed like Secretary Nielsen, as the story reports, was uncomfortable with all this. And so I wonder if there aren't a pocket of folks at DHS who could shed some light on the answer to your question of how much of this was directed from the White House. Um, but, but, but Ryan, you guys ran a story on this. Do you have other perspectives or questions on it? Yeah. Um, so it, it, it dovetails to a significant degree with what, Michael, you just described, which is kind of getting inside the head of just sessions, for example. You know, I, I, I'm just going to put Rod Rosenstein to the side because I just think he's, as James Comey described him, a survivor. And as we saw in the Mueller investigation, you know, flip-flopping between the guy who's responsible for firing Comey to the guy who's <laughs> then putting in Mueller and thinking that he should go back to Comey to ask who he should appoint uh, as the special counsel before they decide on Mueller to telling Trump later that he'll land the plane. You know, just a kind of a ridiculous character. But, uh, but Jeff Sessions strikes me as somebody, it's much more plausible that he is a true believer. He thinks zero tolerance with respect to immigration is a good idea. But I want to drill down one step further, which is, do you think that Sessions, and this is how I read your piece. I, I, as I started reading it, as a lawyer, I'm looking for his intent. And the difference between that he knows that there's a foreseeable consequence that it will be damaging to these families and these children versus an intent where it is actually that is the purpose. And the purpose is to cause them such harm that it will deter them from trying to migrate to the United States. And, and that's what I'm... That's what I'm also like dying to read the inspector general report for that very specific question, because then it does actually trigger as a legal consequence, something like as significant as torture. And the piece that we had published at Just Security was well before your breakthrough piece, your scoop, which was just saying, look, the separation policy can amount to torture because it meets all the elements. Torture requires the intent to create great harm to an individual for a specific purpose, like deterring them from migrating, or another purpose would be to interrogate them, have them produce information. And then the third element is uh, by state authorities. So it would potentially meet all of those if indeed that's their intent. Now, I was just reading tea leaves when I thought like when there were images on TV of gruesome situations with families either separated or seeing them reunited for the first time with their very young children, I thought Stephen Miller probably loved that. He probably thought it's great to show how harmful it is because it will deter people from coming. And so there was parts when I'm reading the, your, the New York Times report, I'm trying to think, is that what Jeff Sessions has in mind or is that what some other people maybe in the White House have in mind? They really are using this as a deterrence because um, that would make all the difference in the world potentially for the, some of these legal implications. It seemed to me from the reporting that they thought this would be a deterrent and that they were pretty clear about that. Now, as I was saying before, this is an issue that I'm a little bit new towards and it's, it's, it's not as, I'm not as sure-footed 
on talking about it as others. I mean, it's enough to, to be part of that story and to report and write on it. But I'm pretty sure that it was about being a deterrent. It was to deter, it was the idea that if, if, uh, if people came to the border and they had children, they would know that, that they would be separated from the children. I mean, it seemed pretty clear and salient to me in the reporting that I had done, my colleagues did, and what we wrote. Um, so, I, I and I, I'm not sure that that um, that they would quibble with that. But but that but 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 that also puts. And when I say they, I meant like you know the people who are making the decisions. I, I think they were pretty clear about that. But this puts an interesting light on Sessions' statement to the Christian Broadcasting Network that is quoted in the story back when this was going on. He says, "Oh, we didn't think." that it would lead to the separation. I wonder if there was some softening of the legal ground there. Now I'm really um, getting into speculation about what he said, but just in the context of what you're saying, you have the attorney general on the record in a public interview saying that they didn't think that they would be separated. Yeah. And just to, I, I think that is what they were doing and what their intent was. I'm, it, it, it'll be very interesting if we have the inspector general report saying that um, for future accountability. Before you go, Michael, um, I have one more question I want to ask um, uh, before we go into our discussion about the coronavirus uh, uh, crisis at its current state, um, but it connects to that. Uh, so let me ask you the question. And then once that's, um, once you've answered, you can go and thank you for coming. Um, but in your book, you sort of broke the part of the story about Trump going to Walter Reed Medical Center and, um, uh, you know, Pence being put on alert and, and so forth. Uh, you shed a little more light on it. And in the past couple of days, I think NBC broke a story saying that at Walter Reed Medical Center, people were asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement with regard to the president's visit which is strange for all sorts of reasons. What do you think of it? Did you encounter that? Do you have any reaction to it? So let's go back to what the White House's story is on this. The president, in the middle of impeachment in November of 2019, decides on a Saturday afternoon, they say, to begin his yearly physical. Whatever the president needs to be done for his physical can be done at the White House. But the president decided to start his yearly physical. Since then, we've learned that that physical still has not been completed. And as I reported, as you pointed out in the book, Pence is told to be on standby because the president may go under anesthesia. And now we're finding out that Trump wanted the doctors to sign an NDA. That's a hell of a physical. Um, and you, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but it just, what really happened? And if you think that accurate information about the president's health is important and you're frustrated by what has gone on the past few days, well, what happened in November of 2019? And could that have any impact on the president's care today? Maybe it was something very minor. Or maybe it was something very significant. But if you're concerned about the president's, you know, the status of his health, 
a full accounting of November of 2019 visit is essential to that. So none of this looks like it was standard operating procedure, um, but I'm not sure we're ever going to find out what it was really about. Yeah, no, no question about that. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, Michael's book is Donald Trump versus the United States, um, which we have all read here and we all like, and we encourage you to go out and get it. And hopefully we'll see you again soon. But thanks for all uh, the great reporting and, and, and all the stories you've given us to talk about here today. So we'll, we'll, we'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Um, so uh, this is the time each week um, where we turn to Kavita and whatever good feeling we may have had is crushed. <laughs> um, uh, as, she, as, she, as she, you know, provides us with her insights into how things are going. Of course, since the last time we've talked about all of this, um, you know, the White House outbreak has spread and spread. Uh, the president's doctors have, as far as I can tell, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, lied, hidden, obstructed information about the president's health. The president has responded to a cocktail that no one has ever had before of medications in a really strange way. Uh, and I think in all but five states in the United States, the number of COVID cases went up this week over last week. Um, so, Kavita, give us, give us your COVID report, and then Ryan will follow up with a question. Maybe I'll Sure, right. And, and just to, uh, to just put a little dovetail onto kind of the point, I'm glad you brought up the November 2019 from the book, because uh, a number of us, in medicine, we're talking about, you know, there have been pres presidents before who have had to kind of invoke the 25th Amendment and talk about power and the vice president on alert when they've gone under for a colonoscopy where, you know, you have some anesthetic and you're obviously not able to make higher decisions. But that is something that has been, for, again, presidents from <laughs> the dawn of time, people have disclosed that. There's nothing strange about it. There's, in fact, everything you would expect not a Saturday surprise at Walter Reed. So I think part of what a routine physical, for those of you who have not had one, does not generally involve anything where you would be mentally incapacitated or not be able to do anything. And if it did, it's hard to believe that there is something in a routine physical that incapacitates you or needs you to have a vice president on alert, but that <laughs> treatment for COVID-19, which is far more deadly than a routine physical, would not require you to have someone on alert, the vice president, for example, or to even acknowledge that it could affect your central nervous system, your brain. So I'll just, I'll stop there and say, there's so much we don't understand. And then just on COVID, you, you David rightly pointed out that our country is seeing while we're all trying to stay away from Washington, D.C., where I live, which is a true super, it's not even one super spreader event. It looks like it's a series The um, Supreme Court nomination, whatever happened before that, that led to that super spreader event, the Gold Star family event the next day where the White House contacted people and said, by the way, you may have been in contact with someone positive. And then any number of events that the Joint Chiefs and maybe Commandant and apparently everybody involved in the national security chain were at through the rally in Bedminster and so on, the debate and so on and so on. So D.C. is also seeing an increase in rates, and most of the states in the country are seeing an increase in rates, in particular Wisconsin. I guess what all of my kind of 
colleagues who kind of work at the intersection of policy and and healthcare are concerned about is what effect could this have on voter turnout? How, if anything, as the weather, you know, we've seen there's now another hurricane, Hurricane Delta, um, kind of bringing unprecedented weather into the Southeast. So again, it brings us back to how can we talk to people about voting safely? If you haven't voted, make sure you do. And if you know someone who's reluctant to vote, there are ways to do it safely in person. If you've missed the opportunity to do mail or just you don't feel comfortable doing the mail, mail-in process. So I, I always remain, uh, oh, and then the other little tidbit, there's always so much going on. It's hard to even know how to unpack it. The FDA um, sent kind of a, you know, just a, a about, it sent a, an arrow into Trump's uh, balloon that he wanted to inflate around having an, a, a vaccine before election. That's what Ryan and I kind of thought might be an October surprise. Well, the FDA really upped the ante by requiring uh, a minimum of two months of data post kind of phase three trials. And if you do the clock on that, it's just not possible to do that before November 3rd. So we think that maybe our October surprise was the president's COVID diagnosis itself or potentially someone in his inner circle, frankly, dying because he does have people in his inner circle who are seriously ill. Um, by the way, uh, if you're out there listening to Deep State Radio and you've never had a regular physical, by all means, you know, have one. It's, it's just, it's, 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 it's a good um, practice. Um, Ryan, before I get on to one other issue, um, do you have any questions on your mind about the current state of the COVID crisis that you would like to pose to Kavita? Um, I have too many. <laughs> just try to pick one. Um, I guess one piece that might be worth discussing is the state of the president's health and the potential state of the vice president's health mm-hmm. after people saw him mm-hmm. physically yesterday with certain kinds of interesting um, signs of um, maybe not being 100% healthy. So I guess the one is... Yeah, that was a vulture on his head, I thought. <laughs> flies, no. The pink no. guy, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> so one is, you know, at what point, you know, President Trump in the last, I think, 24 hours it is, did the video where he's like, I'm done, I'm cured. <laughs> so the, oh, so the man, question, that, was, that was your first Trump impression. <laughs> like, that was really, the voice was excellent. That was, that was good, Ryan. Impressed. I'll keep it up. Um, so at what point do we really know that he's out of the woods? Right. And then the second one is on Pence. To what point do we know that he does not have coronavirus if, in fact, there is this, if I understand it correctly, and that's, that's the question, do I understand it correctly, I guess, there are a subset of people who test negative again and again and again, mm-hmm. but they have the symptoms. They right. clearly have coronavirus. Right. Um, I only know that anecdotally through, like, close friends, one close friend, one close family member, that is them. They obviously have coronavirus. They've had it for weeks. Yeah. They test negative time and again. Um, so for the two people at, you know, at the pinnacle of our government, uh, what you could maybe say about how we should think about the, their, their health status at this time. Yeah, so a couple of things is the time of this taping. Technically, if we are to believe 
Trump by his Twitter account. He's about seven days into the course of his illness from when he first experienced both the diagnosis as well as potentially symptoms. So seven days is still far too early to kind of do a victory lap of any kind about a cure. And in fact, it is in this exact same time window, seven to 10 days, where you can see the second phase of inflammation from the coronavirus take hold and patients can decline pretty rapidly. And a 74-year-old man, white male with chronic conditions, such as the president, has, even if they're not hospitalized, just out the gate with the diagnosis, has about a 4.6 to 11.3 chance of dying from the coronavirus. So those aren't great odds. Despite treatments, which are not curative, whatever the president tells you, they are not curative. They just help to decrease the effects of the virus, but they don't cure it. And so I think we should be pretty concerned, which is why I think it was smart for the debate commission to move to a virtual format. To your other point, Ryan, about the vice president, I think people are making erroneous assumptions about, you know, the vice president said, I haven't seen the president since Monday or whatever. Yeah. So last Monday. um, And then, you know, he'd been kind of withdrawn from close contact with the president is I think how they worded it. But we already know that there have been ripples. Think of it like throwing a, you know, a rock into a pond. There's ripples of those waves that affect people around the president and vice president. And we already know that people like Stephen Miller and others whom the vice president certainly has come into contact with, not realizing that they might, that they were positive. And so he is not just having kind of one close exposure, it's multiple close exposures. So you're right. I know people were speculating about this, you know, conjunctivitis in his pink eye and that is a symptom of COVID. And I think that's one of the more pressing reasons that I feel like the country has the right to know what are the blood levels, not just the test results. Mm. You, can, you can actually measure the viral load and that's not affected or confused by the antibody cocktail. You can measure the active viral load and that tells you how infectious a person is. And again, you have to speculate the reason they are not releasing those results. It's not because they're not doing them. It's because Again, this is a president who doesn't like to have news get out that he doesn't want to hear on Fox News. And that's all you can imagine. And and I do feel, I will tell you, I was one of the very vocal people to the Biden-Harris campaign that said, you should not even do a plexiglass 12 foot because now we have some emerging, now the CDC's finally acknowledged that this virus, even indoors, Ryan and David at six feet, can remain even with masks on, can remain in the air. So six feet might not be enough. And and that's, anyhow. So I would say that the Americans should be concerned. And I'm not sure why. Um, it'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court nomination hearings next week to see which members of Congress, both on the de- Democrat and Republican side, actually choose to come in person. Because you could argue Capitol Hill is just as much of a hotbed for a super spreader event, given what's happened there. And given you, you know, well, David and Ryan, like staffing, whenever you have a Supreme Court nominee, there's just this entire army of White House staff that go to kind of support the nominee and all the things that need to happen. I can guarantee you that that's itself, in and of itself, a risk, a high risk event. And I would, I would stay away from it. So let me end up with one last bit of medically related news that's got a legal component to it. Just be interested in your reactions, Ryan. I'll get your reaction first. Um, uh, Within the past uh, 
few hours, um, Speaker Pelosi has indicated that tomorrow, in the greatest act of trolling in modern congressional history, she and Representative Raskin are going to introduce legislation on a commission on presidential capacity to discharge the powers and duties of the office, creating a process to help Congress um, in meeting its obligations under the 25th Amendment. So they're going to have a press conference tomorrow in which Pelosi says she's going to be talking about, and the process is going to begin with, a review of the president's mental capacity. Now, unsurprisingly, the president of the United States has responded to this, saying with the kind of dignity that he's brought to the office, crazy Nancy is the one who should be under observation. They don't call her crazy for nothing. Um, uh, Ryan, your reaction, and then Kavita. Um, well, I do think there's a very serious concern about the president's state of mental health right now. Um, I mean, in some ways, there always has been. And I always remember, I guess it's apparently Steve Bannon who said that he'll be escorted out under the 25th Amendment or that, that had the highest, one of the highest likelihoods of how he'd leave office. But either due to the potential psychological, neurological effects of coronavirus itself, or due to the effects of the steroid, he has been acting, I do believe, more erratically than usual. So the, the, the tweet storm that people are describing is more of a tweet hurricane that included very self-destructive behavior, like calling off the stimulus negotiations it's very damaging to his own electoral ambitions. And we know that his one motivation in life is his electoral re-election. And then having to reverse himself on it. Uh, his other tweet about that he's going to now declassify without any redactions, everything related to the Russian investigation, which would include the Mueller report, <laughs> unredacted. And then later pulling back on that. Uh, I think it's, I mean, you know, just to take a step back, I do think it's, there's a political move being made in some sense of focusing the country's attention on him and the referendum on, a referendum on him. But I'm very concerned so much about just U.S. national security. Like, if he's acting this way on Twitter, what is he doing if he has a 10-minute phone call with Vladimir Putin tonight? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think there's a very sobering reality to that conversation being had. No doubt. Kavita? I'll just briefly say, um, 2006, the Mayo Clinic published what's considered the seminal article on psychiatric adverse effects of corticosteroids. The dose that the president took is considered a very high dose. And in their review of over um, 11 very well done studies, 32% uh, of people on that kind of, that level of a high dose had what would be considered moderate to severe psychiatric adverse effects, including but not limited to <laughs> um, psychoses, 
um, altered judgment and um, severe depression. So, and frank delirium, sorry, as well, uh, along with euphoria and hypomania, which is, I think, a lot of Americans understand as kind of the roid, you know, steroid high that people can experience. So, it is incredibly, it seems just incredibly unlikely to Ryan's point, there, it, it, it's hard to believe there is not some result. I'm not so sure I agree. I will say this. I've seen Democrats do this before. I disagreed with kind of where Pelosi is going because people have made some comments about Joe Biden and his mental capacity. And there's been speculations about his um, potential to have a neurological illness. And I, I will say that as much as I think that Trump is being affected by these medications, I think this becomes an incredibly murky territory to enter. But I will say that statistics will tell you, and so will science, that there's just no way to avoid these very real side effects, which is yet again, another reason that I think the lack of transparency or being honest about these things makes you, it causes you to infer the worst. And now that we've seen that in this administration, usually the inference is the reality. Well, you know, I can do the math, even though I was an English major in college. And if there is a 100% chance that somebody is mentally unfit for office, and then they take a drug that has a one in three chance of making them mentally unfitter, (laughs) then, you know, there's a 133% chance that he's mentally unfit. Um, (laughs) Which, which, you know, I I find, as as a citizen, I find that concerning. Yes. Um, well, we will, we will have to um, we will have to see how all of this unfolds. Uh, in a sign, by the way, of the president's reversal, a story just broke as we were talking about this that the president now apparently wants a comprehensive stimulus package. Oh. Which two days ago he said he didn't want to have anything to do with, and then yesterday he wanted little ones, and today he so he's certainly. As, as they used to say up in, you know, New England, where I went to summer camp, yawing all over the pond. <laughs> um, and, uh, and we will certainly have to keep, keep, keep an eye on that. Uh, well, we want to thank Michael Schmidt for coming and talking to us. And, of course, uh, as always, Kavita and Ryan, I do want to note that our producer and uh, leader in all these things, Chris Cottmore, turns, well, let me just say it's his birthday today. And we all wish Chris a happy birthday. And I'm sure everybody out there in the deep state nation wishes Chris a happy birthday. Um, And uh, we hope you'll all come back uh, next week because, you know, these days, every couple of days is a week or a month or a year. Uh, Things are happening awfully fast and we'll do our best to try to keep you all up to speed with it. And You know, as is usually the case, Ryan and Kavita are especially good at that. So thank you very much. Go to thedsrnetwork.com for more information about us and what we've got coming. Sign up, be a member, help us to flourish. And, um, you know, I just might add, if you've got a moment, I have a book coming out called Traitor, A History of American Betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump. And it is coming out in... Um, 19 days. And so, you know, you could pre-order it now. You'd get it. You could read it before um, before the, 
presidential election. And there is nothing in it about current politics. It is all just saying, here are all the traitors in American history. How does Donald Trump fit in? Um, spoiler alert. Not so good. Um, uh, but it's, it's a short book designed to provide a little historical perspective on what we're going through. Uh, so I hope you'll consider pre-ordering it. In any event, thank you very much. Uh, and stay healthy, everybody.